hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast wondering whether Pep Guardiola starts having hair grow in when he's stressed. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I've spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcast about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Human Sport. And above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. And just, just a quick question about that Pep thing. Are you saying his hair is growing inside his skull, or are you saying that He's gone so far beyond the stress that lost his hair that his hair has now begun to grow again. I, I'm suggesting that maybe his hair grows and he'll have a, like a thick head of hair in a couple of weeks because, uh, you know, Jose Mourinho, I think it was years and years ago when they were, uh, you know, Barcelona yeah, and Real Madrid manager. He, he, he had a quote where he said like words along the lines of like, if you love your job, you don't lose your hair. And I have like a full head of hair and Pep Guardiola has a bald head. Um you know, classic Mourinho style, whereas I mean, I'm positing that perhaps... It's a, it's a hilarious move. It's, it's a, a hilarious hel- move, but I'm positing that perhaps, you know, Pep has had a relatively... Uh, relative to people who are sort of facing relegation all the time or those issues. Pep has, uh, some might say, lived on easy street as a manager, you know, going from one team that had Messi to another team that had, you know, just won the treble to the richest team in the land. Um, so maybe he's never had any stress, and actually what will happen when he has stress is the reverse, and he'll, st- he'll have a thick head of hair. <laughs> I like it. Maybe. Well, well, we'll likely find out in the coming weeks as his position on Man City's behaviour and indeed Man City's behaviour itself is very much coming under question as on Monday, uh, the Premier League published the findings of a four-year investigation into the club's finances and have um, claimed, they've alleged that uh, the Man City have breached financial fair play rules 115 times over the space of the last 14 years. And that includes um, the details around reporting certain managers' finances, um, such Mm. as Roberto Mancini, and also the players' wages and remunerations. Indeed. And a big one um, is, you know, a big point of focus on this is sort of disclosing sponsorship revenue and how accurate that's been. It's actually quite yeah. funny. Um, and if you remember, like two weeks ago, we were talking about Plus Valenza, and I was sort of opining, like, "Oh, isn't it interesting how, like, in Italy, they sort of take quick action on this sort of thing, whereas in England, we've got Man City who sign like a different crypto sponsor every like six months that turns out to be a post box, uh, and there's nothing that's happened." Uh, so I don't know if uh, the Premier League have been listening to the podcast, but um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait, they can do that? Oh my god! <laughs> Here we are. Um, yeah, so there's been a lot of stuff that come has come out. Part of it has come out um, in in part due to that sort of De Spiegel Portuguese hacker thing that happened a few years ago that was the basis for the um, yep. UEFA ban that was then sort of overturned due to things being time barred, uh, which if people remember UEFA had some sort of weird, I think they may still have like this weird rule where if it's been like five years and something is committed, they won't charge you for it anymore, which seems like a very stupid way to run things. I don't know who that helps. Um, yeah. But the Premier League have no such it's like, issue it's, here. It's like squatters' rights on on like on being illegal. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I've been illegal, <laughs> really I've kept is. it to myself for 14 years, therefore. <laughs> exactly, so, which is which is essentially what happened, UEFA claim. But um, but yeah, they, they've uh, been accused of breaching Premier League rules on profit and sustainability, as you say, not, just, not fully disclosing managerial remuneration uh, and, and not uh, providing accurate financial information. Um, 
City came out about an hour after this uh, with a statement of their own expressing their surprise at the Premier League's charges, um, saying they were surprised <laughs> by the issuing of these alleged breaches of the Premier League rules, particularly given the extensive engagement and vast amount of detailed materials that the EPL has been provided with. The club welcomes the review of this matter by an independent commission to impartially consider the comprehensive body of irrefutable evidence that exists in support of its position. As such, we look forward to this matter being put to rest once and for all. And it's interesting, this, um, because, as mentioned, you know, neither you or I are financial whiz kids, but there does seem to be a lot of stuff that has gone around that doesn't look great for Manchester City. I mean, from the aforementioned sort of examples of those sort of sponsors that turn out to be a post box, but also the fact that a lot of Manchester United sponsors... um, you know, are people like Etihad or, you know, the these other sort of like Abu Dhabi companies that are in part operated by the state and the club itself is operated by a similar organization that is in part operated by the state. I'm not going to pretend that I'm a financial whiz kid, but it's not that hard to sort of draw the dots together and go, hmm. And this is sort of supplemented by a number of emails um, between sort of like former Manchester, well, some still current, but former Manchester City executives in, in, in large sort of talking about, oh, we need 67 million, make sure it comes in four pieces and not in a lump sum, otherwise it'll be obvious it comes from ADUG uh, rather than sort of Etihad and Etisalat and etc. So it looks pretty damning. <laughs> That's on the one hand. On the other hand, I can't shake the feeling that we're going to be sat here in whether it's six months or a year or two years or four years and the result will have been slap on the wrist, 200k fine, don't do it again, you naughty boys. Yeah, I mean, there's a good chance. Um, And the other point to make is while this investigation has taken four years, um, experts are, are saying that there is a good chance that it will not be for another four years until any sort of rulings are made. Um... I think there was an example um, done by Nick DeMarco, um, given by Nick DeMarco, who was uh, the man who represented Mike Ashley uh, in a case when he was trying to sell, sell Newcastle United and was also the defendant for Derby County and Sheffield Wednesday for financial fair play rules. Um, and he said that it would likely take two to four years. And he cited, <laughs> the examples he cited, he said, um, having worked on the Derby County and Sheffield Wednesday financial fair play cases, both of which involved two charges over about two years and took a year and a half from charges to the end, I would not be surprised if these proceedings took considerably longer, given there are apparently 115 charges covering a period of 14 years. So I'm sure you and a lot of other people looked at that and went, this this suggestion that maybe it'll take double the amount of time doesn't seem to be accurate. It sounds like it's going to take maybe up to 10 years. Um, mm. And... Look, again, no whiz kids here. Uh, we don't know what the, the processes are, but it, it does seem like it's really going to be a long time, um, likely many, many years, um, by which I mean five, five plus, uh, until anything comes from this, which seems wrong to me. I, I almost wonder if they might try and do, or if they should try and do something like, you know, like you, you, you judge as you go on. Like if they're going back through the years, and they conclude on the business of the 2012-2013 campaign, sanction them for that year, and then carry on with the other years. I don't know how it will work, but it will be annoying if if that is the case. And as you say, I would not be surprised if there was a chance that it'll all come back and say, oh, no, maybe it does all make sense. At which point, I guess, in a similar way to, to how the rules have had to change because of Chelsea's behaviour in the last month or so, the financial fair play rules might have to change again. We shall see. 
it's interesting. I mean, what else is interesting is we talk about sort of the very low end of the of the punishments there. What is the potential? I mean, just from the Premier League's handbook itself, there is this big range of potential options. And certainly what a lot of um, fans of certain clubs have been talking about is sort of points deductions um, and even expulsion from the Premier League, um, titles being stripped, uh, which, which raises, in my opinion, I mean, you know, I don't know how likely those are. I think that's pretty unlikely, but it raises a couple of interesting points. Um, notably, there, there are two ones that I find quite quite interesting one which is sort of more of a thought and I wonder what'll happen and one which would be a funny occurrence in that if Manchester City are stripped of their um 2011-12 title it will mean that Roberto Mancini has not only had a title given to him by titles being stripped but a title taken away because of course he was manager of Inter Milan (laughs) the season that Juventus got their title Mm -hmm. stripped and awarded to Inter Milan in in Calciopoli so quite an abusing things there you know things equaling out over, over enough time the second one that's quite interesting, uh, and I'm sure we can sort of go on to talk about the ramifications of Erling Haaland playing in the National League, because of course the EFL have no obligation to accept Manchester City, um, but it's what happens if, you know, let's say that Manchester City are stripped of these six Premier League titles, and they go to the teams in second place in each of those years, which just happens to be three for Manchester United uh, and three for Liverpool. What happens in the case of a player like, for example, Anthony Martial, who, do you remember, he sort of, there was an initial fee of 50 million rising to 80 million, depending on certain clauses. And this happened a long time ago. I don't remember exactly the clauses, but using him as an example, let's say one of those clauses was, if you win the Premier League, which United, of course, haven't had with him, you have to pay an extra 10 million. Is there a situation where a deal comes down and all of a sudden Monaco are coming knocking at United's door going, all right, that 10 million now, please? It's a great idea. I, I hadn't even thought of that. Um, I think that'll be very hard to to manage because not only that, but money will have been incorrectly awarded for bonuses and things like that. So uh, in mm. the same way, I don't think it would be legitimate for, for Man City to turn around and go, all right, then Leroy Sané, etc., cough up because you actually didn't win anything <laughs> so you now owe us 50 million that would be the cheekiest thing if like everything's in flames but at the same time they're sort of like right let's recoup where we you know awarded players too much money as we sort of like get our funds together to fight this you know fight this appeal yeah well, well this is where it all gets really convoluted and complicated and you know the, the other part is um the fact that you know it's gonna be really hard for fans to accept if Manchester United suddenly get awarded and our, and um, Liverpool suddenly get awarded three new titles, um, it really does speak to all, all of this, these complications and how frustrating it will be for a lot of people just speaks to how just unfair Man City have behaved. Um, you know, it, they're ruining so, so much for so many people. Um by having done what they've done. And I, I know it's the obvious thing to say, but when you talk about the detail and, and you realise how much wider all of this, um, you know, this, the scope of impact is, it really does just make you so, so angry and frustrated um, if indeed they are um, guilty of doing all of these things um, at them. I, I absolutely agree. And I think 
the the most sort of infuriating and sort of like almost as baffling as to be quite funny thing about it is like how barefaced and blatant it's been is like you know you see these these things coming out i think there was the deloitte money league um that came out a couple of weeks ago funnily enough so i don't know how many people have sort of are familiar with that but it essentially sort of talks about the clubs with the biggest commercial income and a lot of manchester city fans were crowing online going look look we've got more you know commercial income than manchester united and liverpool and and real madrid and bayern munich and it was like if you really sit there for a second and you use <laughs> even the, the merest bit of critical thinking, like no offense to Manchester City fans, the ones who've been there for, you know, God knows how long, I, I don't necessarily begrudge them for sort of enjoying the, the good time in the sun. But those fans who have sort of watched their team on TV and seen an Etihad Stadium that can't even fill up like Champions League semi final games, and it's like, yep, this team definitely has more commercial income than Liverpool and Manchester United, two of the like most globally supported clubs for the last 50 years in world football. The, the idea that that could be. You either have to be really, really thick or really, really deluded to, to believe that. And I think all football fans can be you know, guilty of doing that when their club is in the picture and think, oh, my club's amazing. But like, all you need to do is use the tiniest bit of critical thinking and go, City have the biggest commercial income. Something's a little bit fishy here. Yeah, uh, I I hear what you're saying. And I do, I do mostly agree. But I do think, you know, it shouldn't be the job of football fans to like know the ins and outs of finances. And I can understand how pretty much anything that your club is, is, put on a list for you go sweet we're at the top and not really think too much about it beyond that um but yes you're right it, you would you would imagine that if you thought about it for a little bit of time then it, it would become obvious but then look the other thing that i would say is that it's taken the premier league a long time to to work this out as well four years apparently um and and this is all retroactive and this is all as a result of a leak um, as you said earlier, and not as a result of of logic and common sense and paying attention. And I want to focus on that, paying attention. The Premier League has not been paying attention. If this is true, the Premier League should be breached. The Premier League should be fined. Um, you know, we need a new regulator. This is just not good enough. How can you turn around and be like, oh, we've suddenly realised that 14 years of, of wrongdoing has been happening right under our noses when all of these clubs are expected to comply to to what the Premier League sets out in terms of, um, you know, record keeping and report writing and, and all of this stuff. It, it's shambolic. You're absolutely right. And, and one of Manchester City's uh, points of defence, allegedly, so from a source and, and um, you know, one of the things that's been flying around online is that the timing of this uh, may be quite deliberate. Um, today, it's now Wednesday the February, was supposed to be the date that the UK government and the, sort of the Independent Commission came out with its white paper, uh, which would have, you know, led to potentially, amongst other things, the establishment of an independent regulator of English football and, and the Premier League as part of that. So what some have suggested yeah. who are on the sort of city side are that this is sort of the Premier League quickly scrambling to go, look, look, we can regulate ourselves. We can regulate ourselves. Um, and <laughs> this, is, this is the only reason they're sort of taking Manchester City to task. It is quite interesting because although I think if Manchester City are guilty, I absolutely side with the Premier League. It's also a little bit like one of those Super League situations where I don't really like either side. Like kind of like you didn't want to side with the Super League clubs, but you also didn't really want to side with the yeah. Um, so so it it is you know it it could be the case that the Premier League have basically done this to save their own backs and they've gone okay well what's a quick win for us well City have obviously been cooking their books for years it worked for us to get TV money in because of big moments and 
sort of new rivalries and new narrative to sell. But now that we need to sort of cover our own hides, let's dob them in. It doesn't mean that what City have done is any less wrong, but it does mean that the Premier League's motives for doing so are not necessarily based in, you know, being just and more sort of, you know, covering their own arse. Well, the the other irony is also that, um, you know, they needn't have rushed because uh, as of yesterday, with the latest um, Rishi Sunak reshuffle of, of government ministers, um, the department which would be handling an independent football regu- regulator and and like presenting their findings has been cleaved in two. And there's a new head of that department. So anything that was ongoing, any reports that were being written, any reports that had already been written and had been presented but were yet to be released will all have to go through this new person next. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be delayed for for several weeks, uh, if not uh, several months, as it is. Um, and that's even if uh, the new, the new um, head of the department, even the new head of the new department, even agrees with, with whether or not that's the right thing to do. So it's, yeah, it's, it's layers on layers of uh, bureaucracy. We'll use that word. I think the only other thing that I want to touch on there is we sort of mentioned it there was sort of people being awarded, um, you know, titles, obviously the three titles for uh, Manchester United and three titles for Liverpool are the ones that come to mind. Quite some, some quite funny um, or interesting sort of permutations that come in there, like, for example, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer winning the league, Jose Mourinho winning the league with Manchester United, um, Steven Gerrard being a Premier League winner, Brendan Rodgers being a Premier League winning manager. Um, but as exciting as it is to look at that, and of course also the, uh, the several FA Cups, uh, I've got a, a Stoke City supporting friend uh, who was quick to let me know that Stoke City lost in the FA Cup final in 2010-11 to Manchester City and as such should retroactively be awarded their silverware. Um, <laughs> it's also interesting to look at um, you know the teams that may have lost out whether that is through sort of teams that have lost to Manchester City in a certain way that has caused them to go down or, or something or other. Um, for an example there's a precedent of this in Sheffield United um, and West Ham uh, Sheffield United when they were relegated in 2007 um, sued West Ham as they argued that Carlos Tevez's goals had kept West Ham up despite the London club having been earlier fined by the Premier League for breaking the rules on his you remember the sort of third party player ownership thing? Yeah. Where there was sort of like the club owned him and then he owned some of his own rights and there was a third yeah um, in that case, Sheffield United were rewarded twenty million pounds um, because their legal claim took into account things like broadcast revenue, sponsorship, merchandising, merchandising, and ticket sales, which is obviously all of that's a lot higher now than it was in two thousand and seven, as the the TV money and stuff like that continues to ramp up. Um, and Middlesbrough and Wickham Wanderers more recently both sought compensation from Derby County after they were punished last season uh, because, of course, they both you know, had different issues at the, at the hands of Derby County. Um, so it's interesting to see if there'll be anything like that that comes in as well. Sort of unconfirmed sources, and when I say unconfirmed sources, I mean Cave Solokol on Sky has said this, so who knows if it's true or he's just made it up on the spot. He sort of suggested that there's a large amount of Premier League clubs that are pushing for the expulsion of Manchester City from the Premier League entirely. Um, obvious, just think of some reasons why <laughs> certainly a certain red club in North London <laughs> would want that to happen immediately, but you know, also potentially for Chelsea and all the, all the other sort of big six teams. City aren't in the league anymore. You have a much straighter shot at being the big dog. Um, but also sort of the other teams, maybe they feel it's unfair that City have sort of had this supercharging when they haven't exactly. So lots to follow here. And as you say, it could be 10 years until it happens, but a- an interesting situation. And I wonder almost if, you know, what what's the what's going to be the effect on the pitch? Because as you mentioned sort of there at the beginning, sort of the beginning, Pep Guardiola has sort of 
had this thing at the end of last season where he's always gone, well, you know, if they lie to me, I'm gone the next day. And we could end up in a, in a situation here where even if a court never finds Manchester City guilty or it takes them ages, that the evidence coming out is enough to sort of persuade Pep Guardiola and some of the other players that actually don't really want to be around here. Because for some players, like... On the one hand, you had sort of, I think Lucas Leiva tweeted, am I a Premier League champion now? Which is sort of joking. But like, all of those players like Fernandinho, who's won it five times, big question mark over all those titles right now. In this moment, they might eventually be dispelled if City are proven to be not guilty. But they might be going, hang on, my legacy might be about to be cherished. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and this is why, again, it's it's so unfair that, Like, if, if this all comes out uh, to be true. Um, so... Like we don't know what's going to happen. I think that there's a chance it might affect the the behaviour on the pitch because there's no doubt that it will affect the mood in the dressing room. Um, however, if you're expecting Pep Guardiola to resign next week, I think that's unlikely. It might happen, but I think it's unlikely um, because I just don't really think that... I don't, I don't think that was anything other than a throwaway comment. Yeah, probably not. Although what I would say is I wouldn't be surprised if it is the case that they don't win the Premier League this season and they get knocked out of the Champions League. He might just be like, you know what, I don't want to stick around for another year of this uncertainty. I'm out. I'm going to go manage PSG or someone um, who I suppose have their own <laughs> question marks around them. Nice, safe That's a story PSG. for another time. <laughs> that's a story for another time. Um, yeah. Well, that's it? Man City yeah. and, and their allegations. Should we look at, look at a bit of the football that happened over the last weekend? Yeah, yeah, let's talk about football. Let's talk about Sean Dyche, the man, the legend. He is back indeed. And I can't believe, I think, you know, he's back straight I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when they were sort of debating between Sean Dyche and Marcelo Bielsa that Bielsa was the only one who would actually win this game. Uh, but I forgot that Sean Dyche, of course, masterminded uh, this exact game when he was Burnley manager against Arsenal and at the Emirates to boot. Um, hilarious that it was a Tarkovsky header off a McNeil corner. Literally a, a win made in Burnley, <laughs> this. Um, just absolutely, absolutely. fantastic. Um, and a team that have been just appalling all season in 19th place up against a team that has been absolutely flying high all season. You know, the worst performance of the year from Arsenal so far, the best performance of the year from Everton so far. On Arsenal's side, you could say it was a bad day at the office, but from Everton's side, it's just new management, new effective management. And, and he's he's back. He's back in the Premier League. And so far, so good. It's only one game, but you're not going to get much harder, harder games to come into, are you, than sort of like against the high-flying league leaders? No, definitely not. And I think um, I, I think it's also, it's important to, I guess, kind of recognise that, as you mentioned there, um, James Tarkovsky, um, Dwight McNeil, both playing for Everton now. They, they both signed last year in 2022. And I think that it, it's no coincidence because I feel like what Everton have been lacking is what Burnley had, which is grit and fire and making it really hard to beat you. And I feel like they, they uh, I was kind of thinking about this earlier. I feel like they kind of tried to, to pick up bits of the puzzle um, in signing players like McNeil and Tarkovsky, but it didn't work because the manager was wrong. And eventually they're like, well, if we're actually going to try and, and make ourselves into a side that is hard to beat, if we're actually going to try and make um, Goodison Park a fortress, if we're actually going to try and, you know, um, stay up and have real fire in our bellies, then we actually just need the man himself. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think he immediately has gone in. I mean, you heard over the last week before this game, all sorts of things. There was a video that came out, you know, of him having all the Everton players run the bleep test or saying they had to train in shin pads because training without them was sort of, it showed a lack of dedication to the craft and they weren't simulating proper match conditions. It's the kind of things you hear, kind of like, you know, banning ketchup from the, the thing or whatever, that maybe they have some effect, maybe they don't, but you always like to see it from the outside. You always say like, yeah, this is the reason. And I'm sure there's like a million and one more complex tactical things that he's immediately instilled but for me it's the fact that he's made them wear shin pads while they're training that has you know masterminded them probably at Arsenal they've, they've laced around now they're top of the league they're resting on their laurels peeling off their shin pads uh, and they've lost it to the grit of a side that, that really don't want to lose this game I mean I think it's just change and I think that what's clever about all of those little things is that the players that feel that change everywhere around the club do you know what I mean um you know, it won't just be when the manager's talking to them. It'll be when they're eating their meals. It'll be when they're doing the same training exercises, but it's slightly different now. It'll be it'll be all through, and therefore they will have the impression that things are different. Um, so I quite like it as a as a broad tactic, um, not just for the fact that uh, it, it's it's a nice like. Uh, well, turns out shin pads are the thing that that helps you win games against Arsenal. Um, but yeah, so I, I think, um, I think it's good tactics. I think that you need to establish a, a difference between you and the old, um, the old hierarchy, the old setup, especially when, um, the mood at a club is as bad as it was at Everton's, um, you know, and their form was as bad as it was at Everton's. So he's come in, he's changed a bunch and, and change is good. People bounce. That's what the new manager bounce is. I think it is key to mention as well, like one of the things we talked about when they when they sat Frank Lampard at the time that they did, and one of the things we talked about, you know, every time they're second managers, they always do it at a time when the manager who comes in then doesn't have a chance to build his own squad. But as you sort of highlighted there, they've already started doing the job for him and bringing in two literal Burnley players. So in a way, Sean Dyche has had the ability that no other Everton manager has before him in the last sort of like 10 years to come in and sort of be like, okay, I'm not completely head of a heels here and completely confused i can identify some of what's going on here and you're quite familiar with these players and some familiar with some of it so there's more of a sort of building block start and it's literally those building blocks that won him the first game so just goes to show the difference it can make yeah i mean look i think i think this this side is littered with players that will like sean dyke's approach and will respond well to it i mean obviously jordan pickford's the, the starting goalkeeper but but asme begovic knows what it is to to um, play in sides that are fighting relegation and will know how to respond well to the kind of stuff that Sean Dyche talks about. I think I think Michael Keane will respond well. I think Seamus Coleman will respond well. I think that, you know, Connor Cody knows how to do it. I think all the way through this side, I mean, he's got a midfield that that he, he will love. Ducore, Onana, um, Idrissa Garnagay. I think that's that's purpose-built for his kind of physical football. Um, I think Tom Davies will... will um, come off well from it. I think that Alex Awobi's a good um, Dutch player. I think even Neil Morpey might be a good Dutch player. And then, yeah, and then he's definitely a good Dutch player for sure. Say, and then obviously Dwight McNeil and James Tarkovsky. But saving the biggest to last, I think Dominic Calvert Lewin's really going to benefit from this. I think he's going to be a change striker, and I would not be surprised if we saw him with, you know, five, ten more goals by the end of the season interesting he's not one of the ones i would have identified but i'm i'm, I'm interested to see if that does happen um, did, did you um i don't know if you watched match of the day at all um after 
uh, the game against Arsenal. But one of the things that they were talking about was that um, at the beginning of the game, for the first half of the game, Dominic Calvert-Lewin was just completely isolated. And the two wingers who were Awobi and Damari Gray were both just not, not anywhere near him. Um, and he's so good in the air that Dyche basically just shouts at them to like get a lot closer, a lot tighter. And suddenly Dominic Calvert-Lewin was, was just like winning every single header in the middle of the park. And it was just going to their wingers. And it completely transformed the, the way that they were able to progress up the pitch because suddenly they, were, they, they had a, like a, a grasp of the final third. So not just in being in front of goal, but I think Dominic Calvert-Lewin will become a really important figure for, for Everton just because he's so good in the air. We forget how good he is. We forget how good he was two years ago. We were talking about him potentially being, um, you know, contending with Harry Kane for starting striker for England. Um, I think we talked about that at the Euros. We were saying Dominic Calvert-Lewin should start games like the one against Italy, um, I think because he would have suited the game better. So, you know, there's a really good player in there. And I think Deitch is the man to draw it out. All very good points. Well, look, we're going to move on to another managerial thing in just a second. But just before we do, um, you know, big question. Arsenal, the second half of the season now, the transfer window has slammed shut. You spent the last sort of four or five weeks saying that Eddie and Ketia has been getting, you know, a plus five boost to all stats just because the window's open. And maybe that's true of the whole Arsenal team. Um, cause for concern? Maybe the start of a downward spiral for Arsenal losing a game like this or just a, an off day at the office? I think that... If Arsenal have earned anything from our constant scepticism, it's a little bit of grace. And I think that uh, I'm going to hold my tongue when it comes to saying that this is uh, this is Arsenal in trouble because they, they've lost one game. It was bad. They should have got a result. Um, it'll hurt them. But, you know, they remain five points up in from second place with a game in hand. So... I'm not hitting any alarm bells yet. Um, you know, I think that they've got Brentford coming up. That'll be a really important game because the two games after that will be will be hard, which is Man City and then Aston Villa away. So I think that if they don't win against Brentford and, and Brentford love to to beat the, the teams at the top, then then maybe we start to be a little bit concerned that, uh, you know, the, the bolts in the wheels are starting to loosen. But... Not yet. It is that time of year. Well, look, let's quickly jump into a bit of user's trivia before we talk about our next manager, um, the delightfully named Yank Lampard, as I heard some, some Leeds fans calling him just before he was fired. Um, <laughs> and now we'll get to use that all too much unless he somehow pops up at a, at a new Premier League job. I don't think he will. Um, but first time for a bit of user's trivia. Uh, the one I've got for you this week is all about Harry Kane. Uh, we're going to be talking about Ooh. him a little bit later and what he did against Manchester City, both in the game and within his sort of oh, wider yeah, career. Yeah. Nice. Um, but with with his sort of uh, Premier League goals, two hundred first, he's now scored as many Premier League goals uh, as sorry as two hundred as Barnsley, Swindon, Huddersfield, and Cardiff combined, which is a very impressive <laughs> record. Many will be keen to point out that, of course, football didn't start in 1992. Um, this is, of course, only Premier League goals. So Barnsley, Swindon, Huddersfield and, and Cardiff all have somewhere between sort of 42 and 50 or something like that. Um, and they've scored many, many more in the top flight division. Some will point that out. Others pointed out that, yes, Harry Kane has scored as many Premier League goals as Barnsley, Swindon, Huddersfield and Cardiff combined. 
but he's also won as many Premier League titles as them all combined. So <laughs> that's even if Man City don't win any. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that is a, a, a punishing um, fans that, giving, that... fans taking away. Actually, I've, I've just realised what would be the most Premier League scripted thing of all time would be if this summer, like. Pep Guardiola goes, ah, oh, Haaland, for all his goals, he doesn't play the style I want to and we didn't win the league. Let's sign Harry Kane for £130 million. He goes there, wins the Premier League, and the Christian's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> I mean, that would be fantastic, and I now absolutely want that to happen. Ultimate, ultimate Premier League scripting, that would be. Oh, it would be hilarious. Well, if, if our diagnosis of his psyche is anything to, to go by... Um, based on his missed penalty in the uh, um, the World Cup, I don't think he fancies a challenge for himself. I think he wants to stay where it's nice and warm and the fire's going, and I think he wants to keep scoring goals for Little Tottenham. Well then, uh, what have you got for us this week? Uh, I've got something which just surprised me this week, so I thought I'd share it with you. Um, did you do you know off the top of your head, Cameron? Which team have scored the most opening goals in home games this season? Hmm. I would say, based on their recent run of home form, that it's Manchester United. It's Nottingham Forest with nine out of eleven. Wow, that is quite. That's very impressive. God, that's that's a, a lovely, short, sweet little bit of used to trivia. But that that's surprising to me. So they've just been doing that a lot, and then failing to hold on. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because um, they're obviously they're obviously new to the league and they are doing okay. They're in thirteenth place at the moment, um, but you know that that's a sign that they know how to do at least one thing very well, which is start games on their home turf uh, in on the front foot. And if you can take that and turn it into, you know, some of that Sean Dyche siege mentality of of defending resolutely, then you have a side that can that can stay in the Premier League for a long time. So basically, what I'm taking from this is you're saying that if you take like the front four players from Nottingham Forest and then the back six players and goalkeeper from Newcastle, you'd have a team that would win every single game 1-0 and also win the league unbeaten. Yes. Great. Okay. Well, I like that we've got that. Let's move on to <laughs> the next managerial... Yeah, confirmed. Um, Guaranteed managerial America round Jesse Marsh has of course been sacked by Leeds um he's not been there for a long time I think he's been there for like just a little bit over 11 months um and maybe might, it's might one of those I just, just of... quickly uh mention that the last game that he was in charge of was a 1-0 loss to Nottingham Forest away very prudent to mention that of course um but yeah I mean Perhaps it's sort of you can imagine them sort of looking over at their their table neighbours, um, Everton, and sort of going, hmm, "They've immediately beaten the top team in the league by getting a new manager. We've got back to back games against Manchester United next. Let's just get rid of this guy while while he's not looking." Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, it needed to happen. Sorry, Jesse Marsh. I, I think I think anyone who took over from Bielsa was gonna do badly and fail. And to his credit, I think Leeds have had moments where they've looked good. I think they've been progressive in the transfer windows. I think they have retained their status as an interesting and exciting side. Uh, Unfortunately, they've not managed to uh, retain their status as 
kind of a side that's pushing into the the middle of the pack, um, and and that was what needed changing. Um, it's a shame because they weren't they weren't doing nearly as badly as Everton. I say that they were only three points off them, but um, typically you would expect Everton to be doing marginally better than Leeds. Um, it's it's a shame because I think he'll struggle to get another top flight job. Maybe he doesn't deserve one, but um, you know I, I think that. Leeds are another side, as I just mentioned there with Everton, that there are a lot of really good players in there. And I think that a good manager will be able to do quite a lot with this squad. And I wouldn't be surprised if if Leeds, again, have another little resurgence under someone new if they're able to recruit the right person. I, I agree. And, and, you know, what you said there about it being a, almost impossible for whoever followed Bielsa to do a good job is, is definitely true and it's you know a, a manager like that always casts a long shadow especially because he sort of took them up and I think a lot of times you see this in the Premier League and in sort of leagues around the world but you know most recently in the Premier League we had the example of like Chris Wilder's Sheffield United where teams sort of become the victims of their own success like I don't think it would be that unfair if you take a real step back of like 10-15 years to like a time when Leeds hadn't been in the Premier League for, for ages and ages and go well, I mean, what are they really expecting in the grand scheme of things? They've not had as many years of Premier League revenue. They've just had a great transfer window, as we discussed last episode, and I think they have got some good players there. But the core of that squad was, for a long time, basically driven on by a lot of players that really believed in a, in a singular man's project and vision. They got to where they got to. That man then took them down to a position where they nearly but didn't quite go down um, and was sort of sat before the conclusion of that season so you sort of had that taken out you had the new sort of like stepdad figure come in and try and sort of encourage everyone to eat their vegetables which maybe some people liked maybe some people didn't but they didn't really kick on um and now maybe it has cleared the way for sort of a, a new manager to to take over a squad that has now been refreshed a lot and there is a little less of that feeling that you definitely had with Sheffield United all the way until they went down of like oh this is a, a bit part squad that's held together by like chutzpah and and strong will um but yeah, I, I feel a little bit for Jesse Marsh because it, it always felt like he was doomed to fail a little bit. Um, there was always sort of like the stepdad role. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Um, I think that any sort of like massive jump of success is really hard to maintain. And I want to talk about a couple of teams in this regard. Um, I want to talk about Sheffield. I want to talk about Leeds. And then I want to talk about Leicester. Um, And I think that when it comes to those former two, the way that they succeeded and the way that they they immediately started performing above their station was with new and innovative tactics. And that's really exciting to see. It's great to watch. Um, It's great because it progresses the game. Um, Unfortunately, however, often tactics are new and innovative because when they're countered, they can be countered quite hard. And... When you take a team like Leeds and a team like Sheffield and they're doing interesting things like overlapping runs from their centre-backs and things like this, you you know, that until they are found out, they will do very well. But then as soon as the first couple of teams starts to be able to counter them, they will struggle and they will fall back down to where, you know, they would naturally be performing, which, which mm. is often below the Premier League standard. Um, especially when they use those kind of tactics to to come up in the first place. So it happened with Sheffield and it happened with um, with Leeds to an extent, but obviously they haven't gone down yet. 
but they've massively struggled since um, Bielsa left and since Bielsa's tactics started getting countered quite hard. When it comes to someone like Leicester, where they've succeeded is not through uh, innovative tactics, but with really, really effective recruitment. And I think that that's an interesting parallel way for clubs to to boost their success. Um, and it's a much more long-term strategy because it gives you finances. You can immediately start competing on a more long-term basis because you, you can immediately have, well, not immediately, but you can steadily build up um, the resources to be able to compete with those around you because that is really what it's all about. And we're seeing it with Brentford a little bit. They obviously operate in a different way because they have, um, you know, the, the way that they recruit is quite specific um, and they have a, a much smaller wage budget than a lot of the Premier League sides. But again, what, what they are doing is they're not coming up with these crazy, exciting ideas on the pitch. They're just running their club very well. They're recruiting very well. Yeah. And not only does it give them great players to play with, but it also gives them a lot of money to play with when they then sell them on to bigger clubs. And unfortunately, while it's really exciting to see these, these Sheffields and these Leedses do well, it does come crashing down broadly much quicker than the slightly less sexy, um, you know, building the club up and, and really doing your due diligence with signing the right players. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Although I would say, you know, I think you encapsulated quite well in that word, unsexy. I think for me, it would be definitely, you know, actually, you know, think about it for Leicester City fans, like obviously winning the league and winning the other cup of two moments that are probably unmatched uh, in sort of modern football history. But there would be something so exciting for being like a Sheffield United fan or a Leeds United fan of having just like that real rush of just like going from being a championship side to being like eighth in the Premier League out of nowhere and like absolutely getting these hilarious wins where you're sort of like beating Man Manchester United or or whoever it might be and just go wow wow what a rush and then sort of like going back down it would yeah it'd be a bad come down but better have, better to have loved and lost hey than uh, than to have never loved at all so it's a it's a higher high I'll give you that it's but yeah. you know the, the the flame burns brighter and the candle lasts uh shorter <laughs> yeah well it's, it's definitely true that Jesse Marsh obviously not not great for him uh, now. I mean, eight wins in 32 games is an amazing. Uh, and it's worth noting that, like, in his previous job, the Leipzig job, he only lasted six months. I can't imagine there'll be a big queue of clubs trying to recruit him next, at least for a while. Yeah, well, we'll it'll be a it'll be a period on the sidelines for Jesse Liz Truss March. Um, mm. You know, but if uh, if recent politics is anything to go by in a couple of months, he'll come back and start criticizing Leeds. Well, as as we know, of course, there can be no, um, uh, you know, comparison of Jesse Marsh to Liz Truss because the manager you can compare to Liz Truss is, of course, Brian Clough because they both lost a forty-four days in the job. Uh, so please, the comparisons <laughs> correct. Um, look at look at that. People are getting more useless trivia and out of the the regularly scheduled broadcasting. Indeed. Um, Let's look next. <laughs> um, and, 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 and of course, that was literally at, at Leeds United as well. So um, let, let's look you next. Oh, you should have kept that for next week. You got to. I know. You know they're not I paying know. for this I, podcast, Cam. You know, I, I, this I is free content. You got to. You got to give it out. You got to drip it out. I know. I know. Um, <laughs> let's look next at Spurs versus Manchester City. Um, a 1-0 win. They saw Harry Kane become the club's top scorer. Uh, it was obviously very impressive. And another game where Harry Kane has sort of been the scourge of Manchester City. Um, 
couple of things to look at here. I mean, firstly, Spurs looked a lot better and they, they played the game that they know how to play at home against Manchester City. They've never won at Tottenham's new ground and every single game, every single time Spurs have won 2-0. I think it's always been 1-0 or 2-0. Um, maybe yeah. there was one. I've got the, I've got the stat here if you'd like it. Please. Man City have lost all five of their matches against Spurs at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, failing to score a single goal despite having 84 shot attempts. Well, there you go. Um, so Spurs played the game, they know how to play. And it's just, it's interesting, isn't it? How I've heard a lot this week of people sort of look at the sort of the lineup and go, well, you know, of course Pep Guardiola didn't play KDB in this game because he doesn't really like to play De Bruyne against teams that play a back three and the movement into the channels and yada, yada, yada. And I'm as guilty as anyone of sort of hamming on about how certain players fit in the half space or do such and how La Pauza is an important. Like, you, you Cameron? Surely, no. Just, just play your best players? Like I, I think this whole thing of like benching Kevin De Bruyne in the middle of a title race against a team that historically gives you trouble at this ground and then losing that game is like any other manager does that and the fans will be hounding for their head. But Pep Guardiola, yet again, it's like his ball genius. And I'm just like, Ugh, great, give it spare me. <laughs> no, no, you don't understand. We would have lost by more to nil had De Bruyne I, 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 Honestly, I'm just like, <laughs> give me a fucking break. Um, yeah, it, it's a mistake you you have to view it as a mistake and for all of for all of his machinations um he he messed up because they lost um and they didn't look like the the city that we're used to necessarily um but with that being said city have quite a few times this season not looked like the city that we are used to I thought one of the things that I was most interested in this game was like Christian Romero doing a kind of defending that only Christian Romero really can. There's like classic, like it, what used to be sort of very archetypal of like old Argentinian defenders, like the Javier Mascherados of this world. And before then, it's like in the first half, I the think ranging. it was, he like, he like chases Erling Haaland into his own half, like half an hour in and absolutely like reduces him to nothing, like sights him down. I guess he had a card for it, but like, he's kind of like, almost like getting into his head. He's like, oh, you got to watch out, mate. I'm going to be here all game. And if you do want that wrong, and you almost maybe get in someone's head at that point. And Harlan's not thinking about like, will I score a goal? He's like, will I leave this pitch in one piece? Um, Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think oh, it really depends, doesn't it? Because if I'm Harland and if I've got the right, if I can get myself into the right mindset, I'm not thinking like, oh no, I'm scared. I'm thinking... Christian Romero is now fucked if he's on a yellow already and for, got it for no reason. I can get him sent off, um, which which a lot of... I, I can think of quite a few strikers. So I think only someone like Christian Romero can do it because I think like, there's that tactical way of viewing it. But I think when you see the, the lack of sanity behind that man's eyes, you're like, if he, guts, <laughs> if he does get sent off, he might go for my throat next. Like <laughs> When the referee gives him the red card, he might try and eat me. <laughs> Uh, well, I guess I guess that's a fair point. Chris Romero has he uh, has he had a bad, um, or, or perhaps by his by his standards a good um, a good time this season in terms of of yellow cards and red cards. I think he's got one red card. By, by his standards, absolutely. This has been his first red card, I believe, in the Premier League, certainly this season. And I don't think I think he's about five. I think he's one of those players that's like. He he does so many that like the, they're all yellow card challenges. But you know how like referees, if there's a red card challenge, they'll normally give it. But if there's like 
a yellow if a player's on a yellow card and they do another yellow card challenge referees are often like well that in isolation doesn't merit a sending off so do i want to give them a second yellow and he'll do like one or two of those and not get the second yellow and it's like if he'd done that and he wasn't on any cards you would have booked him so why is it different um so i think you know he's been lucky to only have one red card this season um because he's definitely been doing like absolutely i mean both of these tackles were horrific there was like no no justification (laughs) whatsoever but that's been his bread and butter uh since joining spurs and you could make the case and i would that in this game it was part of the reason they won um even if they did end up with him sort of marching off and having a one game ban i think that's a worthwhile trade to beat city really yeah no I, i agree with you i mean interestingly apart from this game he's only been booked four times this season um but i mean that's insane um but i mean what's also interesting is that like clearly he was given a mission <laughs> um and you know if uh you talk about argentinian um defenders there but italian defenders know how to do it as well as as england fans will be all too well aware um so I, i've got no uh no no doubts that antonio conte will have told him exactly what to do and he will he yeah i agree with you he did it very well I, I definitely think so. Um, let's look next at our sort of preview, uh, I suppose it would be, of Chelsea's super squad assembling. Uh, Enzo Fernandez straight in the 11, Michaela Mudrik getting his first start, um, and then it sort of ended up a nil-nil, and Chelsea didn't have any shots on goal. Walk me through where Chelsea's problems were, or was it just Fulham exceeding, and uh, excelling even, at keeping out this, uh, this tremendous sort of Avengers Assemble type squad uh, with their, their grit and hard work? The Avengers Assemble squad. Um, it's uh, where to start, really, when it comes to Chelsea at the moment. Um, isn't it crazy, Cam? Don't you find it personally crazy that when you spend hundreds of millions of pounds on new players without much of a sense of what you're doing, it doesn't just all come together on the pitch for you like a like a happy Hollywood ending? Um, isn't that isn't that a real shock uh, to the system? It, it sure I, I know is. I know I was surprised uh, when Chelsea didn't didn't beat a side that has been better than them all season, 6-0. Um, but you know, I guess that's just what happens. Um, I mean, you look at the look at the statistics. Um, Chelsea had over two-thirds of the possession and zero shots on goal. I think that tells its own story. Um, you know, an, an ineffective front line. Um, it's it's hilarious that for all of their signings, they didn't actually pick up a striker. Um, so Kai Havertz starts and we can argue till the cows come home about whether or not he's a good player or not. I think there's a good player in there somewhere because he's shown it sometimes. But but it's not as as leading the line for, for for Chelsea. It doesn't work, especially not against a side like Fulham, which will sit deep. Um, so, you know, I, I don't see much of a plan at, at Chelsea at the moment. I don't think that Potter knows what to do really I, I think that it's tough for him because it's constantly been changing since he took charge um you know if if indeed he did maybe have some sense of of what his best side was at the start of january which i would argue that he didn't he now has five new players to try and work out what to do with again so it's almost back to the drawing board um i mean mudrick looks looks kind of good but it's another game and another game of looking okay, but another game of largely not, you know, not leading to any goals or assists. Um, so, you know, I just think that Chelsea 
buying all these players ironically is is like Fulham when they came up to the Premier League a few years ago and, and they were like players. we'll just buy all these new players and then we'll be good right and that's not how football works um you need to integrate them football's so tactically complex you just can't do it we talked about this um last week in relation to um you know signing a bunch of players for an, an American sport like um like American football versus signing a bunch of players for actual football and it just doesn't really work in the same way because the systems are so complex um, and, and the tasks required of players are so many and detailed and varied. Um, so, look, Chelsea's new-look side came across a very well-established Fulham side that are doing incredibly well. They are above Chelsea in the table. And, you know, if anything, Fulham, Fulham could have nicked it here. Um, they had four shots on goal. Um, to Chelsea's zero. So, you know, when it comes to who was more likely to come away with three points, I think Chelsea would be happy with a point given how mm. they played. Um, yeah. You know, it's it the, it's different. It, this, the, the, the goalposts have shifted. The landscape is different. Chelsea versus Fulham, even Chelsea playing at home, is not the game it was one year ago. Not by any stretch. Um, and Fulham just keeps showing us why they are where they are on the table and why, you know, they they will probably be there by the end of the year. It's interesting. There was one thing you said there that really jumped out at me, and I sort of want to latch onto it. You sort of talked about Graham Potter not knowing his best team or maybe sort of just coming to grips with what his best team was and now it's entirely changed because those things have been apparent. He's sort of not had a lot of consistency in the way he plays. There's been sort of different positions for different players. And I kind of wonder if a part of that has been due to, you know, when, when he was manager at Brighton, he integrated loads of players in in the right way, brought them in in the right time. We're seeing a load of those players still at Brighton thriving really well. Or some of those same players, for example, I mean, one, uh, for example, in, in Mark Kukurea coming over and, and not looking a shade of the player he did back at, at Brighton. And I, there's a part of me that wonders if, you know, we see that it's Todd Bowley who's making the selections for a lot of these transfers. That we've all sort of heard this story about how he watched the World Cup final and sort of told his team, like, get me that player. And this is something that we see a lot at, at clubs in disarray when there's sort of like a disconnect between squad building of what the manager wants and what the owner wants. And I almost sort of wonder if this has gone one step further where not only is Todd Bowley sort of identifying the club's targets... But also there's sort of like a certain pressure when you have like an Enzo Fernandez come in or a Michaela Mudrik come in that they have to be played immediately because these players, Jao Felix being another one, they're straight in. They're not really getting a time to, you know, we look at these players, those two that have just been brought in, Joao Felix at least has sort of spent a little bit of time in sort of top level European football with, with Atletico Madrid. But Enzo Fernandez and, and uh, you know, Benfica and, and Shakhtar uh, top teams, but they play in the Champions League, but they're not sort of in the top European leagues, if you know what I mean, the top five leagues, uh, as, as we all call it. Um, sure. You know, they're coming in, they're both really young guys, and they've barely had a chance to say hi to their teammates, and it's like, get in, start a Premier League match, or come in here and do X, Y, Z. And it's like... Save us. And I <laughs> Looked, looked solid in the game. I thought he looked all right. I don't think he looked 105 million pounds, but he looked not not out of his depth per se. But you know, Michaela Mudrick was hooked at the half, um, and and so you do sort of question. This isn't really what we we know of how Graham Potter works with young talent, and we've seen him working completely the opposite way over at Brighton. Could this maybe be a case of, you know, Todd Bowley, who we see at all of the games, going, "Okay, Graham, I bought you all these players. Now uh, time to play them." Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure that's the case. Um, and you know, the, the 
the contrast between Graham Potter looking at who he can bring up through from the youth ranks, for example, or who he can sign across Europe. If Brighton go to him like, look, Graham, we've got a really finite amount of resources, so we need to be sure that anytime we spend money, it's it's going to be correct. You you just have to be smarter mm-hmm. about the decisions that you make, um, and not just that. If you're looking at if you're assessing your your academy, for example, you're you're looking for players that can fit specific tactical roles, um, and and you're making active choices as a manager to do that, whereas. There are no active choices being made by by Graham Potter, likely under Todd Bowley, um, and and the reverse is true because he's probably being told to play these players, um, and he he now has to kind of create a system that works for them rather than a system that he wants to play. But then a lot of these players aren't necessarily compatible, so it's just a real. In a, in a in a sea in a whole game that it's incredibly hard to be tactically resolute and successful against like a constantly changing opposition. It gets so much harder when you don't have control of all the pieces. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree, and I think there's a it feeds into a wider conversation about like fans and how fans have started to affect clubs. I mean, you look at you know, for example, Chelsea are not the only club to do like this, like <laughs> Well, if you look at like how, how a club like Chelsea have acted in terms of how like their social media team have talked about signings or sort of like, it, it's almost like, I, I think there's a growing uh, segment of football fans. It's a lot of like younger fans who sort of are big sort of social media users or whatever. Their like favorite part of the game of football is like the transfer window, if that makes sense. They're not like so much about like watching people play, but it's like, oh, and it's like specifically fans of quote unquote big clubs, by which I mean clubs that spend bigger than the transfer market. They're like, oh, you know, we've won the transfer market. Oh, we've done this. We've signed this player. That's fantastic. And then when they sort of go on and they're not so good, like let's say an Anthony or something. They're not really that bothered about that because the next window is only three more months away and then they can go again and go, oh, well, look, we've signed Enzo Fernandez. Oh, wow, look, we've signed, you know, this player or that player. And that's like, for those fans, that's sort of the big important part. And it seems like increasingly clubs are sort of feeding into that with the way they sort of signpost these things. And obviously it's always been a thing to make a big deal out of big transfers, but it feeds into this sort of like weird like anti-football support where the actual game being played is not the key source of entertainment. Um, but I think it's quite interesting and definitely something that seems to have been played in here because, yeah, again, someone like Enzo Fernandez, like no one sort of sat and thought about why he would fit Chelsea per this story, um, which again, I can't remember where I saw the source, but <laughs> so, so I might be sort of source catch-upping everyone here, but I remember just reading that thing that was like Todd Burley watching the World Cup final. He was like, I need that player. As if a basis, uh, like as if sort of like 90 minutes is a basis to go and spend like 100 and, um, what was it? Not 100, uh, 120 minutes rather. As if like that's sort of a basis to go out and spend 105 million pounds, um, which it obviously is not. <laughs> um, whereas as you say, sort of with Graham Potter, it was much more like, here's the kitty. We have to think really carefully about how we spend this money. And as a result, the players were a much better fit. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a great point that um, I guess the, the entertainment value has shifted because it's not just about what happens on the pitch. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe what's been replaced is is being able to actually interact with the the players themselves, and instead of being able to do that and see them at the pub, um, you know, that night or anything like that, uh, is what you maybe would have would have had thirty years ago. Now it's all about the excitement around new signings and imagining what they'll be like, and you know, imagining 
who who you're going to get on your shirt this year and all this stuff and the commercial aspect of it. So definitely, yeah, I, I think um, I think that's a good point. I think, however, sorry, go sorry, on. Sorry, you, you, well, I was just going to say, like, you just see it all the time. Like, if you ever look on Twitter, you'll see there there are two fan bases, probably just because they're the biggest and oldest fan bases that you see do this all the time. But like, it happens with everyone. So I'm not singling these two out because they're the only ones who do it. They're the most sort of obvious examples. But like. Over the last few years, you'll have seen like Liverpool fans be like, we've got the best keeper in the league, we've got the best centre-back in the league, we've got the best manager in the league, we've got the best player in the league, and it's like, why have you only won one Premier League title then? How have you got all that? Or like Manchester United fans go, right, we've got Rashford, who's the best player of all time, we've got Sancho, we're absolutely cooking now, Bruno Fernandes is miles better than Kevin De Bruyne, you know, this player, that player, and it's like, why have you not won the league then? <laughs> those two things are logically inconsistent you can't have all these best players in the world and everyone's like miles better than the team that are above you and yet you're not above them that, like, how, how can that be true <laughs> well yeah i guess you're you're you know and i think arsenal fans are a good example of this um you can win in two places you can win online or on pitch <laughs> yeah yeah that's true um and you know, sometimes when you're not winning on pitch, it's nice to win online. Um, and it's nice to imagine a, a fairer world um, where where Bruno Fernandes is in fact better than Kevin De Bruyne at football. Um, but yeah, I think um, what, what's going to be interesting is that like, you know, you say there that, that there's a lot less care being taken with with these, these signings. Um, and you can do that as a bigger club, but only so much. You really only can do it so much because that's literally the point of financial fair play is that it's not being reduced to a bunch of billionaires swinging their checkbooks around. Um, the whole point of financial fair play is to keep the game competitive. And whether or not you, you want to argue about if that's been successful or not, I would argue, you know, as we've seen, very much no. But mm. it's getting harder. The, the, the you know, the, the, Changes are being made. It's constantly getting harder for for clubs to overspend and get away with it. Um, and, and Man City is another good example of that that we've just had come out. And I, I think that while they can afford to spend more money than Brighton, obviously, they can't afford to do it like this and they can't afford to do it for very much longer. Well, you've taken us very neatly there, Rupert, full circle, um, you know, bringing in financial fair play and Manchester City uh, back into the conversation. Uh, one more thing before we go, um, just a little story from last night. Of course, we mentioned last week the uh, Wrexham versus Sheffield United game uh, that reached its conclusion last night. Uh, Wrexham had a really good go, but were ultimately vanquished after Paul Mullen missed a penalty and ended up with a counter-attack, which saw uh, Sheffield United go 2-1 up, and they uh, sort of started throwing everything at Sheffield United, and they, they scored a third Sheffield United I didn't think deserved to win but did you see Billy Sharp's comments after the game no what did he say he was like weirdly rattled by Wrexham it was like a team like loads of div- like three divisions below him and obviously like Sheffield United were also near the top of the of the championship and he was like oh the players thought they'd already won it like really didn't like the behavior of them it's like disrespectful and I was like are they not just getting excited about the magic of the cup, which is ostensibly the thing that we all love about the FA Cup? Like, maybe they're, you feel that they've already got their eyes on the next game, but that's like, some would say that that's the mark of successful teams who are like not thinking about things day by day, but thinking about like, I always want to be better. I always want to win the next one. It was quite funny. It was like a weird, I mean, I thought it was quite amusing to be found. I liked seeing that from a player um, just because I like to see, you know, different things in the usual sort of pre-prepared media statement, but I was slightly baffled by it as well. But um, yeah, I mean, he's got a brilliant goal to put them up 2-1 and uh, I think Jeff United deservedly went through. 
I mean, I guess it. Uh, I, I kind of see where he's coming from in the sense that you know it, it was a fairly, um, you know, flaccid first half of football, uh, and then Sheffield United went one nil up, and they probably did at that point just think, oh well, we've got this in the bag because Wrexham are, are way no, no, worse no. than Billy, us. Billy Sharp, Billy Sharp was saying it about Wrexham. He was saying that Wrexham before the game thought that they had already got there, and he was saying like they're not respecting us who are two, three divisions above because <laughs> they're only thinking about Spurs. Oh, that makes way more. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, hey, I mean, look, whatever they did, if it got on his head and rattled him, then great. Um, if it made him angry and made him play better and score good goals, then maybe that needs a uh, addressing. We just score the winner. <laughs> Well, at any rate, just to, just a yeah. quick one to check in there with the Wrexham FA Cup dream for this year at least uh, being over. Um, but probably a good place to end it for this week, Rupert. Good to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much. And I leave you with the final piece of trivia, which is that Wrexham are the first non-league team to score 15 goals in an FA Cup campaign since Bishop Auckland in 1955. Blimey, a great place to end it for sure. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll speak to you next week. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.